You wanted the best. You've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. We have all the best authors, and if you didn't think we had the best authors on yet, they just keep getting better, and we have better today. So you're going to be able to enjoy this wonderful conversation we are going to have, and it's going to expand your mind. It's pretty cool. It's not about politics, which is kind of nice for a change. Uh in the meantime, you can see the video version of this, youtube.com, Fortress Chris Voss. Hit that bell notification button. And you can also go to shop, or I'm sorry, amazon.com, forward slash shop, forward slash Chris Voss. You can see all the wonderful authors that have been on the show, and you can click on buy their books separately or just, you know, run that credit card up. Buy them all at a time. Besides, uh, what are you gonna else are you going to do? You're stuck in the coronavirus quarantine. Uh, today we're going to be talking to Eric Weiner. He's the author of the Socrates Express in search of life lessons from dead philosophers. He is the award-winning journalist, best-selling author, and speaker. His books include the geography of bliss, the geography of genius, as well as man seeks God and the Socrates Express, of course, which we have here today. This is a beautiful book. There you go, nice and thick. Uh, his books have been translated into more than 20 languages. Eric is a former foreign, co- foreign correspondent for NPR and reporter for the New York Times. He is a regular contributor to the Washington Post, BBC Travel, and Afar, among other publications. Welcome to the show, Eric. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Happy to be here, Chris. Awesome sauce. And so we've got the, oh, this is the advanced reader's edition. This was kind of special. We got a hold of here. So the Socrates Express. What motivated There's you the finished product. There you go. I got a label on mine. This, this makes it special. Oh, I think. yours, is, make yours special? is better. Yours is better. Yeah. I got the I label. Like I'll sell it to yeah. you on eBay. Um, doesn't have an autograph, though. I don't, I'll have to look up the author. <laughs> well, you send, mail it to me and I'll sign it. Then well, that sounds we'll, like a deal. Good. That sounds like yeah. a deal. And then I can put it on eBay. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're having some fun here. Eric, why did you write the book? Uh, what motivated you there, buddy? Uh, it was really this thing. Um, it's not on now because I'm talking to you, but it's my yeah. iPhone thingy. Um, you probably have an iPhone thingy, an iPhingy yourself. I got a Samsung thing, thingy for me. Samsung thingy, yeah. And uh, so with these smartphones, we've got basically all of human knowledge from the ancient Egyptians to theoretical physics, you know, available at the swipe of a finger. Uh, probably, I think it's safe to say, never before in human history have we had access to so much knowledge. And so many people have had so much access. And yet, are we happier? Um, Are we leading richer, more meaningful lives? And I would argue the answer is no. And uh, the reason, I think, is that we are awash in information, but woefully lacking in wisdom. And that's really the genesis for my book, is this, uh, this hunger, really, for wisdom, not for more data bits, not for more information, not even for more knowledge, but wisdom. And we often conflate the two, knowledge and wisdom, um, but they're different. 
Um, you know, knowledge is something you possess. Wisdom is something you do. Uh, my favorite explanation for the difference comes from a, a British musician and journalist named, named Miles Kington. And he said, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. Um, and that, that. Is, that is wise. And that is true. So wise. wisdom is applied knowledge. And you're probably thinking, well, what does this have to do with philosophy and philosophers? Well, the word philosophy uh, comes from the ancient Greek, philosopos, which means love of wisdom. And a philosopher is someone who loves wisdom. And that's the, the launching point for, for the journey on the Socrates Express. We've, uh, like you said, we have a lot of information, but not a lot of knowledge. Clearly, you've been on Twitter. <laughs> so give <laughs> us an overview of uh, the book and, and uh, stuff. Well, this is a, a book about philosophy for people who would never pick up a book about philosophy. Um, you know, the, the comedian Steve Martin majored in philosophy as an undergrad, and uh, he famously said, well, if you major in any other subject, you forget it the, the second you graduate. But if you major in philosophy, you've retained just enough to screw you up for the rest of your life. <laughs> and I think, unfortunately, that's the impression of philosophy, that it's something that will mess with your head, or it's something that's difficult, something you're likely to flunk out of in college. And it really didn't start out that way. Back in ancient Greek, a couple thousand years ago, it started out as this love of wisdom. It's where people went uh, to get in shape physically and to get in shape mentally and to learn how to be uh, how to be wiser. So I approached the book through that practical lens, and each chapter is actually a how-to chapter with very basic things like how to walk, uh, how to get out of bed, how to wonder, how to listen, uh, how to fight, how to be kind, and getting later on in the day and in life, how to grow old and even how to die. Uh, channeling one philosopher uh, through me to sort of wrestle with that how-to question. It's about life. It's a user's manual to life. User's manual to life. I like that. Yeah. There's a yeah. this. Um, how to get out of bed like Marcus Aurelius. Uh, yes, he was, a, he was a Roman emperor. He was mm -hmm. a pretty powerful dude. Even I uh, had a bigger empire than you, Chris. This is how big this guy. Really? Was. Wow. Yes. Yeah. He controlled. He had like ten podcasts, and he was <laughs> no, seriously. He was a Roman emperor in the first, first century AD. Controlled a quarter of the world population, huge territory, but he couldn't get out of bed in the morning. Um, he, he and he writes in his book called Meditations, which is this very confessional sort of like journal. In fact, it was a journal. He writes about lots of things, but one of them is how he has trouble getting out of bed in the morning and how he uses his philosophy. He was a Stoic um, philosopher and emperor to help him get out of bed. And uh, what's more practical than that? You know? Yeah, most definitely. He clearly didn't have Death Wish Coffee brought to you by deathwishcoffee.com and powered by the Chris. Yeah, Lodge. see, Marcus, Marcus lived a thousand years. He lived about a thousand years before coffee was invented. You see, oh, God. that was his his bad, totally his bad. No wonder know? he, yeah, he should have worked that out differently. He should have, totally. Do not want to be living a thousand years before coffee, note to self. So it looks like there's some different uh, titles here. See like Thoreau, Fight Like Gandhi, which is kind of interesting. We'll, uh, we'll get into that. Uh, be Kind Like Confucius, Have No Regrets Like Nietzsche, uh, Grow Old Like Bavor. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but tell Beauvoir. us more about what those are about. Yeah, Bavor. Clearly. Yeah, right. so it's, it, is, um, it is, again, these very basic uh, things that we do 
that we think we know how to do, but we don't, right? And this is, this is sort of what philosophy is all about. It's about questioning the obvious. And uh, you said, here's a show that's not about politics. And you're mostly right, a little bit wrong, in that it's relevant to our time. Okay, no, it's not really about politics. We, we, we don't question our assumptions. We think we, we know how to see, for instance, um, if you could hold up your coffee mug there for a second. Thank you. So you think that you are looking at the coffee mug and that most people think of it as a thank you. Is that one of your sponsors or something? No, it's just the cheat <laughs> It says hot stuff on it, but okay. it's supposed so to reflect we think, my looks. You think that you're looking at the hot stuff coffee mug as a sort of photograph, that your mind's eye is just taking a photograph and you're seeing it, but that's not how it works. In fact, you, Chris, are having a conversation with the hot stuff coffee mug. You're, it is merely sending electromagnetic waves to your eye and then to your brain, and then your brain sort of decodes it and says, huh, what is this? Looks like a coffee mug. These letters look familiar. Yes, I think it's a coffee mug. And that sort of conversation happens very quickly. And usually it's efficient and effective. And so you pick up and you drink out of the coffee mug and, you know, not out of the microphone, which would be bad. And yeah. um, I've had those so, nights with drinking, though. Right, <laughs> drinking out of the microphone and talk, talking into the coffee mug. Yeah. But the point is that um, we need to slow it down, said Henry David Thoreau. Uh, he, he saw more than we did. And he would say, well, wait, you think that's a coffee mug? Maybe it's not. And he thought as soon as you define something or somebody, you stop seeing them. You've defined them. This is a coffee mug. This is a guy with a baseball hat on and a microphone. And, and, and we need to slow down the seeing process and sort of have that conversation, but have it more slowly. Ah, I, I love the, the thinking behind that. So basically what you did is you took some of this philosophy and you turn it into like everyday techniques. And so you made it easier for people to connect the dots between the two things. Because some people look at philosophy and, you know, they go, oh, wow, that's too little too airy for me. Um, it's it's not. It I mean, if, if being happy is too airy for you, then yeah. <laughs> but that's really what it's about. And um, unfortunately, you know, in, in schools and colleges, it's not taught in this way. Mm-hmm. It's not taught as a love of wisdom. It's a taught. It's taught as a love of analysis and uh, logic chopping. Uh, some people call it, and um, you know, there there's a place for that in philosophy. But its original purpose mm-hmm. was about how to get through a day, how to get out of bed, how to see more beauty in everyday events and everyday places and people, um, and how to how to cope. I mean, we can talk about that for a second if you yeah. like. Um, sure, let's co- get into that. There's a, there's a chapter called How to Cope, like the Stoics, um, and it's kind of timely now because uh, we need some coping. So Stoic is probably, it's a term most people know, but like most of these terms, it's a little bit off base. Um, we think of a Stoic as someone with a stiff upper lip, upper lip who just doesn't grumble, doesn't complain, doesn't feel anything, sort of like Mr. Spock in Star Trek. Um, the Stoics, in fact, were much more than that. Um, they, they really believed in a joyful life, but they thought too many of us spend too much time trying to control things we can't control and not enough time controlling what we can control. So they mm-hmm. would see people then, as in now, um, chasing money, fate, form, uh, fame, fortune, whatever it is, um, and not getting it and having setbacks. And the Stoics would say, 
you can't control, you cannot control that. All you can control is your reaction to events. And even something as horrible as this pandemic uh, need not depress us and it need not devastate us. They, he, the, the Stoics thought that we sort of, um, you know, we give away our agency and our control over our lives. And we say, oh, bad things are happening. I must be miserable now. Not to take anything away from the bad things, but often we make them worse through these mental habits. And the Stoics thought that we need to exercise sort of more, more control again, to pause. Like, you know, if you were to bang your head into the microphone really hard, I'm not suggesting you do that. Um, you know, it accidentally it would hurt and that would be a physical sensation. And the Stoics would say, okay, Chris hurt his head, but then you might dwell on that for the rest of the interview and the rest of the day and complain to whoever wife, kids, whoever saying my head hurts and, and it could ruin the rest of your life. I mean, it's a slight exaggeration. The Stoics would say you banged your head against your microphone. You can't control that. You can't control the bump on your head, but you can control the rest of it. Definitely. Um, it's interesting to me how, you know, these, these uh, I don't know what the most earliest uh, uh, philosopher was, but isn't it interesting how all this stuff still applies, like thousands yeah. and thousands of years it, later? It is. And, and, but yet... You know, Greek knowledge, we started off talking about information and knowledge. Like, we don't really want to use Greek pharmaceuticals from 2,000 years ago. That would probably be a mistake, you yeah. know? Um, and Greek technology, you know, we've made great advances. But that's because knowledge is perishable and wisdom is not. So that's why it's still applicable. I mean, we're still human beings, and we think we're so advanced because we've got these gadgets and other gadgets. <laughs> but really, we, we suffer for the same reason that ancient philosophers do, and we exalt for the same reasons. And, um, and yet, we, you know, we think it's all about knowledge and technology when really wisdom is what life is all about. Would you say that we're collectively just, we're in search of that, of, of the knowledge that you have in the book? subconsciously and and we feel that by collecting all this bs on facebook and twitter that somehow we're going to fill that void but we never do that's a a really good searching for more of it and now that's a that's a very it's a very good question very good point i think you're right i think we have this hunger for wisdom but it ends up getting directed as you say into this search for stuff and sort of knowledge and Facebook followers and Twitter followers become things that we amass. They become stuff that we accumulate. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think that if we just know more and have more information, we'll achieve this state of wisdom. Uh, and that's not the case. You can, you can know too much. And as, as you're aware, you know, you can have too much information coming at you. It can actually be detrimental. I mean, actually harmful. Mm-hmm. Where you become less wise, the wise the more information but that bombards you, and you, maybe you've met people who are very knowledgeable, uh, usually about a certain subject. They usually specialize, but they're not particularly happy or not yeah. particularly wise. You know, so we I think we we're confused, and and some people look for wisdom in in religion. I know. Mm-hmm. If you watch your show, you're not a religious person, uh, so there's some people who have problems with religion as, as an answer to the wisdom question. And then what are we left with? We're left with science and psychology. And that's helpful up to a point. But I think 
that we're missing out on kind of the, the search for wisdom that's kind of just stripped bare, you know, in philosophy. It doesn't usually have fancy statistical statistics and terms attached to it the way psychology does. It doesn't have the whole religious infrastructure, I'll just say that, <laughs> attached to it. So it's just, you know, people trying to figure out what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to lead a good life? And how should I go about it? And we don't, I don't know, we're, we're racing around, we're, we're, you know, distressed now because of the pandemic. And, and yet I've talked to friends and maybe you've experienced this too. People who are thinking now actually is, is a time to stop, pause and think about what, what the hell am I doing with my life? You know, even when the pandemic's over, what, what am I doing? Yeah. It's a, uh, it's, it's definitely a good time and always a good time. I, I, I think this, I, I'm loving this discussion we're having right here because I, I know that I always want to be smarter. And I think most people do that, whether they're searching for what you mentioned, uh, meaning in life or where they're just searching to like, just for a self-satisfaction or maybe a little bit of a narcissistic sort of thing. Well, I want to be smart so I can. Yeah, that's not that's not the that's not the smart that I admire. To be <laughs> sure. honest, no, seriously, I've 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 known people like that in my life who have lots of book knowledge, uh, but are not wise. And you know, you there are people who can use knowledge as a kind of weapon. Yeah. You know? And uh, gee, I hate hate to get into politics, but certain people on one end of the spectrum might denigrate certain people on the other end of the spectrum. Let's just leave it at that and yeah. say, you're, you don't, you're not smart. You don't know what you're talking about. And uh, that's a way to shut down a conversation. Um, knowledge should be something you share, not a weapon you wield. And, yeah. um, and wisdom would never be that wisdom is, mm-hmm. I would say there's, there's no such thing as narcissistic wisdom. There is such a thing as narcissistic knowledge. Let's put it that way. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So, um, so would you say narcissistic knowledge then would be the uh, attempt to acquire information? Because I'll give you an example, like for conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, well, I'll give you a broad example, actually. This solves a lot of my issues, and you've, you've heard about some of them. You know, I, I grew up in a cult. I grew up with a, trying to be programmed into a certain religious slant. And I've spent my whole life, because this has been a scar that I've tried to heal that doesn't help my family's involved in it still. Um, but uh, my search for being has always been, why do people choose to believe that what they do? Not just their own religion, but like if you decide, you know, hey, politicians, lizard people. Hey, there's a little blue aliens living amongst us. Um, whatever you choose to believe you do, uh, you know, my children are are tools of Satan, so we must put them in the bathtub. You know, that sort of, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and you, you see people that recently we've seen a lot of people, and I think part of it's mental health for what's going on with this, subscribe to these conspiracy theories. And it's interesting to me how deep they'll go in like for anything. I mean, you know, even me, I have a pretty depth of atheism and what it is. Uh, and, 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 and they, and they go really deep. And, and so I wonder if some of that narcissistic knowledge or that chase for it, or that seeking of knowledge that we're looking in the wrong place for, we should be looking to maybe philosophers. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's, yeah, uh, I, I, I think place. you're right. I think, um, the impulse that makes people, join cults and believe in conspiracy theories uh, 
actually begins as a good impulse um, to be wiser, to be more knowledgeable, to figure things out, right? A conspiracy theorist is, is trying to figure things out and solve a mystery. They, they get off track, of course. Um, people who join, well, people who join a cult um, are also hungry for something, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't think that makes them weak necessarily. No. But what happens is, uh, and this brings it right back to Socrates, the the main the main dude, is we we acquire these beliefs and we we don't question them anymore, and mm. we're then just going down that train track. Uh, to some destination, and we don't know why we're going there, but we're trying to go as fast as we can. And what Socrates did back in ancient Athens is he would go around and he would annoy people, basically, um, and ask them difficult questions. Like, he'd find a general who says, you know, you must know a lot about courage. Oh, yes, I know. And he would start to ask him, well, what is courage? And the general would give some half-baked lame answer. And most people would be satisfied with that and say, well, thank you, general. You're very very courageous, wise man. But no, Socrates would push and push and say, well, where did you get this belief? And how do you, what about that? Do you know this Mm -hmm. to be true? And it's pissed people off, you know, as it then, as it does now. (laughs) Um, But it's funny. We always think that other people have these entrenched beliefs, but never us. It's sort of like when you're in traffic, you're like, damn, all this damn traffic, not realizing that you are (laughs) part of the traffic, right? So it's, uh, it's easy to, to look at people in cults and conspiracy theorists and say, well, I'm not like them. I, I don't have any false beliefs like them, mm-hmm. but we all do, right? Yep. And we don't see them. I mean, trying to know your false beliefs is trying to, like, see your eyeball, you know? Yeah. You can't do it. So that's why um, not being isolated helps, getting out mm-hmm. of the echo chamber um, Socrates thought philosophy should be practiced in the buddy system, sort of like we're doing here, have a conversation. He was not, uh, you know, we think of philosophers as going off into the mountain and thinking deep thoughts alone. And a few of them did that, but not many. Most of them were pretty social, uh, mm-hmm. or intermittently social. So we sort of need to have conversations and with people who are not just like us. Um, yeah. You know, Socrates talked to everyone in Athens and, and not just people just like him. And so we get our, our beliefs reinforced. If you're in a cult, you don't get any outside messages. If you're a conspiracy theorist, you just go to those websites. Yeah. And if you're a, a liberal, you'll go to certain websites and not others as well. So yeah. um, that is not a recipe for wisdom. Um, yeah. A recipe for a kind of knowledge that becomes a cage really, that, that yeah. traps you. There are some times where I focus on different topics. I mean, I've led some adventures through my life. Like I went through some years where I tried to be a photographer and be a good or great photographer, bought all the cameras and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I go through these adventures and I, I would try and, you know, I, I think a lot of us are searching for meaning, whether it's just, whether it's religion or cults or conspiracies or just everyday life. Sometimes we're just like, why am I here? You know, like uh, uh, one of my favorite things is uh, what was that one movie where, Jack Parlance, I think it was. He goes, you got to find the one thing. Um, and I think a lot of people are looking for that. And sometimes it's like what you have in the book here, day-to-day motivation. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I can get out of bed today. That's pretty much every day for right. me. Fortunately, I have two Huskies uh, yeah. that will annoy the crap out of me to get out of bed. I don't know if Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> yeah, Huskies. see, no, Marcus, it was, it was actually that sense of uh, outside himself, some sense of duty, mm-hmm. uh, not as a emperor or as a Roman or as a philosopher, but as a human being to help other people. And that was what ultimately got him out of bed. And 
And that's, you know, your hus- huskies are important, actually, because yeah. they, uh, not just because they're probably licking your face and jumping all over you to get out of bed, but because they're reminding you, oh, yeah, there's another uh, sentient being who's dependent on me. Yeah. And, um, you know, that sense of duty got, got Marcus there you out go. of bed. There you go. If I don't, they'll You're be on the floor, too, so there's that. Yeah. Well, your huskies are your I huskies could teach are Marcus Aurelius a couple things, evidently. <laughs> You, your huskies could teach them something too. They're, they sound like two philosophical dogs. Uh, sometimes I don't know <laughs> when they're not peeing on the rug. Uh, you know, I know this is a special book because I was trying to find the chapter you're referring to earlier. It's got zero page numbers. <laughs> so I was trying to find the chapter earlier. But what's interesting at the beginning of your chapter, it appears that you have like a little um, a timestamp. Uh, and yes. uh, some sort of thing. Give us a, tell us what that's right. about. So uh, there's a train. There are several trains in this book. I like trains. I don't know how you feel about trains. I like train trains. travel. I used yeah. to trains when I was a kid. I don't, I don't like trains the way uh, foamers. A foamer is someone who's a train nut who gets so excited as some locomotive, he starts to froth at the mouth and foam. I'm not like that. I just like the experience of taking a long train ride. Yeah. Um, and so I did. So in, in the course of researching this book, I mean, I traveled to where all these philosophers did their thinking and mm. where they lived and died. And, and I took just train rides for the heck of it. I took Amtrak from my home in Washington, D.C. to Portland, Oregon, took four days, three nights, took a train across India, across Europe. And each chapter opens with me on a train. Short little oh. ditty. Uh, I, it's sort of an intermission between philosophical acts and uh, I'm thinking on a train. And I can think on trains. I cannot think on an airplane. I don't know if you've ever tried to think on an airplane. It is physically impossible, I believe, to think on an airplane. Uh, the air is thin. Uh, the leg room is too short. Um, you know, so, but on something about a train and a long train ride where you feel like it's just you have all the time in the world, that's when I can think. And so, um, yeah, it's sort of a, one long train of thought, you might say. There you go. Whoa. He hit the uh, thing there. Uh, the uh, Yeah, maybe I should try a long train ride. I mean, you should. Take the show. Take I mean, my, wife has been taking, the show. my wife has been telling me to get on a train and never come back. So, no. I'm not <laughs> uh, so, there's a joke. She's there. kidding. She's kidding. She's kidding. So, this explains the cover. We'll plug yes. this again here for the plug uh, of you on a train That's car. That's not right necessary. Now. I got one here. Okay. Well, okay. Yes. Um, it's yes, not about who has is, the bigger uh, book, Eric. No, no, it's not. But if it were, mine's bigger. Uh, uh, so he's thinking there, and he's looking out the window, and uh, I don't know. I, you know, why is he naked books. though? That's really what I want to know. What's going on there? I, I'm not uh, sure you can yeah. do that on a train. Yeah, chapter chapter two would explain all that. The Greeks yeah. had some funny ideas about sex and things. This like is that, the but thinker that's for another. Yeah, he's a thinker. This is uh, my friend gave me a, a, a uh, my business partner actually had given me the statue of the thinker years ago, not the statue, but you know, like right. a replica. And uh, because in my business, I used to challenge a lot of my thinking, a lot of stuff we built for our companies. Um, I, I used what, what I call the uh, crazy Ivan effect. And so what I would do is I would run off on weekends with uh, on little jaunts or vacations, we call them. Uh, and I'd take a yellow pad and paper and I'd sit and think about my business and why we did things. And sometimes I'd just take apart whole things that I had forgotten that I'd built, actually. <laughs> and so I'd be like, why do we do things this way? And they're like, I don't know, you built the systems that way, Chris. I'm like, I did? Well, why did I do it that way? And so I would do this uh, crazy Ivan 
reverse inlet and nothing was off limits. I mean, that's kind of the way my brain works on philosophy and religion and I think Crazy Ivan is philosophy, basically. I think you've... And so I I basically do that internal wilderness of mirrors where I try and look inside and try and get over whatever unconscious or conscious biases I have. I challenge them, you know, why do you believe in this stupid crap? Hmm, I don't know. (laughs) You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, and sometimes you don't get an answer, at least not right away. Um, But it's important to ask the question, you know, and we don't ask the question and we don't... You know, um, I, in one of the characters I meet in the book, a living character, is a guy named Jacob Needleman, who's a cool dude, philosopher from out in San Francisco. And I took the train across the country to meet with him. And he said, no, the problem is in this country is we're always rushing to solve our problems or to f- find pleasure, but we don't sit and experience questions. Mm. And I thought that was a very profound thing to say, that um, – we're, we're big into problem solving and we want to get past the question as quickly as possible and get to the solution. And we think that's just automatically good, but are we willing to sit with the question? Um, you know, you, it, it's uncomfortable. You know, you think, well, I should, I should change my career. What should I do? I need to find the answer. And you just, you just frantically look for you Google career changes and you, you can't rest until you find it. And then, and we need to sort of be willing to sit with uncomfortable questions for a little while. I mean, you're, you're still working them through, but you're not rushing. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's one of the themes in my book is just to slow down. I mean, yeah. there was a philosopher named Wittgenstein who called philosophy the slow cure. And he said that all <laughs> philosophers should greet each other with, instead of, you know, have a nice day, should we have a slow day or something like that, you mm. know, and something actually useful. Um, yeah, it's sort of just pausing, like what you did with your business partner, you know, probably was not the most productive, immediately productive, I would say, you know, a few minutes yeah. out of your day. And probably he was like, Chris, what are you talking about? We got, we got stuff to do. We got stuff to do. That's why I do it on the weekends. Because we'd be driving <laughs> in the car, kind of like you in the train. And yeah, yeah. I'd be trapped in the car. Uh, he or uh, girlfriend would be driving and I'd be sitting there in a passenger seat, nothing to do. You're on these long drives where you know, you're just, just between Utah and California. And uh, so I'd be stuck there with my iPad. So I'd start writing and tinkering and I would do it this way. I don't know, but I love the concept of what you said, experience questioning um, and kind of uh, revel in it or wallow in it, if you will. Um, and you're right. I think a lot of people, you know, that, there are some times in my day where I either have insecurities or I need some hope and I go looking for hope. Sometimes I go to the news. <clears throat> Sometimes uh, I go to the WAPO. No, 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 don't do that. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I go, I go different places. Sometimes I go to Twitter. That's a mistake. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's talk about um, Dunning-Kruger, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, mm. Uh, you know, a lot of people fall into that too, in that search for knowledge. And that probably, should we explain what that is or does everyone sure. know what that is? I'll, right let you, I'll let you take it. Well, as my understanding of it is, it is essentially a sum it up very simply that we don't know what we don't know, <laughs> that we are ignorant of our own ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, and people uh, in the Dunning and Kruger were two psychologists and they did these studies and essentially found out people are convinced they know something when they don't. Um, and it takes a lot to change their mind. Um, so we we don't know what we don't know. And I would argue a lot of us don't care to know what we don't know. We, we don't, we don't, 
we're just we're 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 like well we know that we don't you know but in in fact uh, that's how you know that leads to groupthink it leads to a lot of stupidity actually and it's mm-hmm. the stupidity not of the uh, ignorant but people who are ignorant of their ignorance and I know this sounds mm-hmm. highfalutin but but it's it's and Socrates talked about this twenty five hundred years before Dunning Kruger was um, so. Brief little history is this oracle at Delphi says Socrates is the wisest man in all of Athens. He thought, me? Wise? No, I'm just I'm just a dude. I walk around barefoot. I'm a stonecutter's son. So he went around asking people questions in Athens, and he realized they thought they knew all these things about courage and beauty, and they didn't know Jack. So then Socrates famously said, well, at least I know what I don't know. So maybe I am the wisest man. And um, yeah, we we don't know what we don't know. Um, which is tricky. Um, it's not questioning the knowledge you do have. It's sort of questioning the unknown unknowns, you know, mm-hmm. things out there that um, that we don't know and living with that. Um, look, right now, talk about uncertainty. Uh, when will there be a vaccine? When will life return to something resembling normal? Uh, we don't know. And that makes us uneasy. And that's a dangerous time because people will turn to uh, snake oil salesmen and others who will give them quick and easy answers. Um, because we um, we don't, as human beings, I don't know what you think about this, we don't do very well with uncertainty. Um, it tends to drive us nuts. Um, but the philosophers in my book, and I would agree with them, a lot of them think that does not need to be the case that life is uncertain, but it, but we can build up our tolerance for that. Mm-hmm. And some people, if you've noticed this, have a higher tolerance for uncertainty. They tend to live in the moment and that sort of thing. So it's not like uncertainty is equally bad and, and you know, it's like, you know, being shot in the head and it's bad for all of us. I don't know where that came from, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it, it's like some people have this tolerance for it and some people even are okay with it. Um, mm-hmm. They're like, I don't know where I'm going to be a year from now, and I'm okay with that. And we, other people would be like, whoa, I need to know where I'll be five seconds from now. You know? <laughs> the, uh, and, and you're right. That comes back to, uh, like you say, when people go look for conspiracy things, I think they're trying to accumulate wisdom, and they don't realize they're just accumulating some knowledge. And they're looking for, certain, they're looking for certainty. They're clinging certainty, to the certainty yes. part. Yeah. And, uh, and wisdom is um, it's not that kind of certainty. It's something mm-hmm. more fluid that you're always willing to change. Um, the uh, the epigraph, that's a little quote at the top of my book, is from this French philosopher. And he says, sooner or later, life makes philosophers of us all. And uh, <laughs> I think that's true. I think that's very the, true. You know, there's some people say, oh, I never contemplate anything. I think right now, any everyone's thinking what the f? You know, what do I do? And I'm learning more at fifty. I've learned more about fifty about myself and about life and what I don't know. Partially because I have this great history to look back on of wreckage and go, yeah, there's a pattern there, man. Like when I was twenty, there wasn't any wreckage. So there's no pattern to look back on. You couldn't look back and go, yeah, there's kind of a theme going on there. But now well, Nietzsche, the, the philosopher Nietzsche famously said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been debated. Some people say what doesn't kill you leaves you maimed and bitter for the rest of your life. <laughs> but but in your case, it sounds like your childhood, whatever you went through, I don't know all the details, but um, it was tough, mm-hmm. rough, 
And yeah, it didn't, didn't, didn't kill you. Didn't Did kill it make me. you stronger? Did it make you stronger? I'm still bitter, though. No, <laughs> no but, uh, you know, one thing you were talking about, I wish somebody had sat down and explained this to me, but I, I sat down with my niece and nephew uh, early this year because they were both starting to graduate from school, and I realized they were at a pivotal point that I wish someone had told me some stuff. And I sat down with them, and I tried to compile in writing to them everything that I wish someone had told me when I was 20 and shit that I didn't figure out sometimes till I was 50. And one of those things was, I said, let, let me explain something to you in life. There are three things. There are what you know, there are what you don't know, and there are what you don't know you don't know. And right. there are lots of times where I go searching in my life. Sometimes I go searching for information. This is one of the reasons I really enjoy this podcast because I have brilliant people like you on who come open my mind, expand it, and hopefully my audience has the same experience and gets me thinking about stuff that, wow, I never thought of that before or I didn't even know it existed before. And so, so the, the truth the truth is, Chris, that you really this podcast is a philosophy podcast. Um, oh, wow. in dis, in disguise. I would not change the name <laughs> to the philosophy podcast. Keep the Chris Voss show. That's good. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm very serious actually. What you're doing um from the episodes I've watched and certainly our oh. conversation is philosophy. Um so uh Does this mean I gotta wear one of them fucking robes with the sandals and shit? Yeah, it does. And yeah, yeah. and you <laughs> um no, you this is the problem is uh it's it, it's sort of um what's the word I'm looking for? It's stealth philosophy is what uh-huh. is what I do in my book. Is it's it's the the ideas are getting in there, but I try to write in an accessible way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a fan of what Einstein famously said once. He said, "If you can't understand, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. Mm-hmm. If you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough." And so, I think my job as a writer is to read all these dense academic books, understand them, and explain them simply. Explain the ideas simply. And that's what I've tried to do in all my books and certainly in this one. And what I like about your book is it's just not philosophy coming at you like to be or not to be do or do not. You know, there is no, I, I was going to quote you. Uh, you're, you're just, you're free associating, but go ahead. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> making it up. That was Shakespeare uh, actually, but that's okay. Make one great. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. The Yoda is this Yoda philosopher. Anyway. Um, yeah, like yeah definitely. Is Yoda's he? definitely. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Very wise. Um, Pizza is not pizza with pineapple. I think you said that. Uh, but what's interesting about your book throughout it is you're not just, like I said, throwing uh, throwing philosophy sayings at you. You're doing a really, you're kind of sharing the introspective and telling a story uh, that you're going through and, and your yeah. experience and stuff like that, which is really nice. You're, you're talking about the train ride and you're, you're like incorporating it all into this thing. And so, you know, it's just right. not, you know, like if you ever read a philosophy book, you know, and, or somebody, you know, like a, a quote book or something, or you see some on the internet where it's just like, the way is not the way if the way is the way. And you're like, mm, no way. Yeah, no way. Right. There you no, go. I, I, and thank you. And, and that's what I try to do is I try to, I, I try on these philosophies and, and, mm-hmm. um, and apply them to everyday situations. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like uh, uh, walking my dog and, using uh, Gandhi's tactics of nonviolence. Um, Let's get actually, into that, my, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, okay. The, so the my, fighting, my dog... 
<laughs> how to fight like Gandhi. So there you go. Um, most, all these philosophers are, are misunderstood, but probably none more than Gandhi, because most people think of him as this, you know, kind of saint-like figure, very passive and meek. And he was, he was, a, he was a badass, really, Gandhi was. He was tough. Um, and he wrote a lot about the need for courage and manliness. And he thought that you needed to fight. Uh, the worst thing than violence was cowardice. Um, but he did think you should fight nonviolently and get into the sort of good trouble that John Lewis talked about. Yeah. John Lewis studied Gandhi. Um, and, uh, and his ideas are extremely practical. Uh, he wasn't perfect, but he was tough and in a nonviolent way. Um, so he would oppose a law. If he thought it was unjust, he would say, I'm going to break this law at 2 p.m. tomorrow uh, because I don't think it's a good law and it's, uh, you're welcome to arrest me. And he would go and do it and he would get arrested and he would serve his time. And uh, he felt that you had to point out the, how do I put this? You, you point out that by being human yourself, you're extremely human. Let's put it that way. You point out the inhumanity of the oppressor of the police, right? So if, if there's violence on the part of protesters, uh, that muddies the waters. Gandhi thought you must be incredibly strict and disciplined in your ranks, not the least amount of violence to be used as an excuse by others, and also because it's the right thing to do. Um, so if I used a word to describe it, it would be badass, if I can say that on the Chris Foss show, uh, oh, yeah. disciplined, disciplined and, and loving and it's a strange combination. We don't find that in people these days. We, I think in John Lewis, we saw it in a few other people, but that combination of toughness and love is, it's not, it's not something you see every day. So maybe according to your book, we should get back to some of the basics. Like, uh, I can't remember. I think John, Wooden, uh, it was uh, the basketball coach. He used to always say, let's go back to the basics. Maybe we yeah. should be going back to the basics more. You know, the original core of philosophy, some of these original philosophers and stick with the, the stuff that works. Yeah. Uh, there was a philosopher named William James, American guy who said, truth is what works. And by that, he did not mean I can say two plus two equals five or some conspiracy theory, or whatever. He meant that if you try something out in your life and it works and makes you a better person, then it's, it's, it's good. I mean, I could say, Chris, you know, uh, running three miles a day is, is good for you. And you could study it and look for studies, and find studies that say, no, it's not actually good for you. And I'm like, or you could just like start running three miles a day. And you're like, I don't understand this, but it's working. So there's a, there's a certain, yeah. Wisdom is actually in philosophy. I'll leave you with this thought. Maybe is this the most practical thing in the world? I mean, it is. People think it's this impractical subject that, oh God, hope my kid doesn't major in philosophy. Teaching you how to think and how to think about life. What what the hell is more practical than that? It's a great toolbox to have because if you have it, you know, then then everything else revolves around that. You can solve it. And it's portable. You can take it with you, this toolbox. Mm. And also the toolbox from 2000 years ago works just as well now. It hasn't rusted out. Mm. In fact, you can pick up their tools and throw it in your toolbox. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you. The, the great thing is, is, I mean, there is a reason this stuff has stood the test of time. And, and we're talking about right. it today. And we probably won't be talking about QAnon like 3,000, 4,000 years from now. <laughs> 
Um, or, well, either won't be talking about it, or it would be the only thing we're talking allowed to talk about. One or the other. You're, but I would you're say right. we could be there too. <laughs> um, you're right. It, um, the test of time. That's like that's a cliche, but like, it's a cliche okay. because it's true. It's a cliche is something that is saying that has stood the test of time. That's what a cliche is. So I would say that you're right about this this wisdom that um, it's it stuck around for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. There's a reason, and and Socrates didn't give us really any knowledge. He gave us a method, right? And these methods are actually what's more important because um, all the stuff we think we know today, I, I guarantee you, in a thousand years, if not five hundred years or sooner, a lot of it is going to be looked at as just absurd, you know, yeah. and wrong and wrong. Um, but the method of how we get at knowing stuff and being wiser. That ages very well. Ages better than, better than you and I, for instance. Yeah, it's. It, I, there are times where I come to the end of the day, and I've read so much BS or argued about so much BS, and and sometimes you look back on it, and you go uh, on a lot of timeline and a hill of beans, and, and all the sands of the of the ocean lapping against yeah. the uh, lapping against the shore. This isn't going to matter. So Mark, Marcus, Marcus called it the view from above, that you picture yourself way up there in the stratosphere, and you look down. I mean, he didn't know about space travel, of course, but now we can picture, you know, you picture like being way up there in orbit, and you look down at Earth. That's got to give you some perspective. perspective. Yeah. Look at that view from above, and you're like, I'm worrying over this, or these two people are fighting over that little dot down there within the other dot, you know, and... Um, and when you look at the view from above, you tend to, it, it makes the heaviness of your burden less heavy, right? You're like, doesn't really matter. And you sort of see the interconnectivity. Um, hmm. I think the astronauts who went to the moon commented that, you know, you just realize it's just this pale blue dot, as Carl Sagan said, and we're all floating through space on it. And why can't we all get along? Because it's ridiculous otherwise. Yeah, it's a, it's a giant... Uh... It's a giant. Uh, what have I likened it to? Sometimes when I've written, um, it's it's a giant kind of lifeboat, and we're all rocking it and doing all sorts of stuff to sink it. And some people are punching holes in it, and punching holes some in people it, yeah. tr- trying to throw other people off the lifeboat, and yeah. some people are just complaining that we need a bigger lifeboat. This isn't going to work, and yeah. yeah. And so it's an interesting. Was there anything cathartic that you found uh, when you? Let me ask you this. We'll combine that question if you don't mind me stacking that. But sure. when you when you went to write each chapter, were you were you and you were on the say on a certain train? Were you planning on like I'm going to focus on this thing, or was there something cathartic in the experience that drew you to like you're on the train and you're like this is an interesting way to go with this? I mean, I I, I try to have an idea about a chapter and a philosopher before I dove in, but be totally open to throwing that idea away, um, which means throwing work away. So I arrived, for instance, in Concord, Massachusetts, and I'm going to write about Henry David Thoreau, who famously wrote Walden Pond. He was the guy who went off and spent two years living in a cabin. And I thought for sure that chapter was going to be called how to, you know, how to be alone like Thoreau, or how to live simply like Thoreau. 
first of all, it turns out he was 20 minutes away from this bustling town of Concord and he'd go in to get his laundry done three times a week and get his mom's cooking two times a week. And he had lots of visitors. So first of all, it was not the way it appeared. <laughs> and second of all, I realized that, you know, when I start talking to people, just having open-ended conversations with people who know Thoreau, and I would say, well, what, what do you think he was about? I've got some ideas, but I want to hear, what, what do you think, if you were writing a how-to chapter about Thoreau, what would it be about? This woman named Leslie Wilson, who was a curator at the local library, said, oh, how to see. It was about how to see. And I never thought of Thoreau as like being about vision and seeing. And then I started to read his journals and read about it. And turns out it was about seeing that he, all that solitude or supposed solitude, that was all about seeing more beauty and seeing more clearly. So that's just like an example of you go in with an idea and you're willing to throw it out and go down a different road, even if it's not efficient. Mm -hmm. Efficiency is one of, uh, I don't know. I think a lot of our problems today are caused by this focus on speed and efficiency at the expense of other virtues. And let's be clear, being fast and efficient is not just a good thing. It is what we've decided is good. There's nothing that says efficiency and speed are inherently good. And would you say this because people aren't busy trying to experience their questions? They're, they're going for that quick fix, you know, instead of going home making a nice healthy meal you go for mcdonald's you know so that sort of thing that quick consumerism yeah it's, it has to do with um i think the the question of how much is enough right i think we're getting we could talk for another hour about this but in, in there there's a philosopher named epicurus i write about who, who talks a lot about this but um we don't really answer the question how much is enough we don't know we just think it's more you know, uh, people who are worth hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, um, they feel they don't have enough. How can that be? Um, yeah. And they might continue to work because they enjoy it. But if it comes from the sense of lack that we don't have enough and how, how fast is fast enough? Can any, like, that's a philosophical question. That's not a mm -hmm. technological question. Um, is 600 miles per hour in an airplane fast enough? We would say, no, faster is better. We can go to New York to California in an hour and a half. That would be better. Would it? Is faster always better? Is more always better? Um, and that's, uh, I don't know how we get onto this subject, but that, that's no, how we get cool. into trouble. And, and Epicurus, the philosopher of pleasure, defined pleasure differently. He thought, that it was an absence of suffering. And once you had an absence of disturbance in your life, that, um, that, that was enough. Like that, mm -hmm. that was it. And anything beyond that was just, you're playing games with yourself. You're varying the pleasure. And he yeah. thought varied ple pleasure varied does not equal pleasure increased. Mm. So I don't know. You've got one. My wife and my mistress love. tell me this all the time. So, um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh. And he would say that you're, well, I won't go there, but he would say basically um, it's this, it, it, our whole consumer economy is based on the fact that a variety of pleasures is better than just one simple pleasure. And um, yeah. And he makes a compelling case for um, choosing the simple pleasures. So you don't become a prisoner of the fancy pleasures. You go out for a fancy, fancy meal, cost 500 bucks for wine and everything, and you enjoy it, but now you're kind of addicted to that experience. You've got to replicate it. 
you've got to do nine podcasts, you know, just to make enough money to have that meal again, you know? Oh, you're like psychoanalyzing me. I still trying to I'm figure out what use, the tenth one's going to be. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so. There you go. It'll be the Chris okay. and Eric show. I'm not there doing. Go. There you go. The Chris and Eric philosophy show, and then I'll come there up with go. one of those little thorny crowns that like they used to wear in Athens and shit. The philosophers yeah. did, and then I'll get like the Where robe. I already wear sandals. I wear flip flops, so I'm already halfway. halfway. See, I'm already a philosopher, really. When it comes down to it, I just don't know it. <laughs> it's true it's actually true it's one of those things that i don't know that i don't know that i don't know anyway this has been a great discussion anything more you want to uh, leave with us on why people should pick up the book and, and um stuff? yeah i would say um don't be afraid don't be afraid look at the friendly man look at the friendly naked man on the train <laughs> um, philosophy man. is not a four-letter word um you have nothing to fear and everything to gain in terms of wisdom and I say, come along for the ride with me. Um, you will learn something. You'll be a bit wiser. And you'll have some fun. You'll definitely have some fun. I like how I, I love the, the way you play it out with the, where you're on the train. And you're, you're going through the experience with you. And so it becomes a narrative. Because I gotta tell you, like I tell you, if I read philosophy or like a quote section of a website, it can get really dry fast. You're like, the why is the where is the when and the when. You're like, what the fuck do I do with this? <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, you help explain it and you go through the journey. We're going through the journey with you, almost like a bit of a catharsis. I'm, I'm figuring it out. You're figuring it out as I figure it out. Um, the only difference is I spent four years reading a whole bunch of books back there. So you didn't have to. You um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's personal. Um, I mean, if a philosophy isn't personal, what good is it? You know, yeah. like, we can have an impersonal philosophy of life. What, what, what the heck is that about? No, it's personal. You might agree with uh, – might take on things and you might disagree, but I, I guarantee you'll think. And that's if you ponder thing. it, ponder the, the thing. And the beautiful part is you spent four years developing the data and they can get it in the Socrates Express very fastly in a read that won't take four years, unless you're a really slow reader or unless you really want to, <laughs> you really want to, what was that term that we had that uh, we've been using here? Experience the question. Experience so. the question. You could, you, could, um, you could read a sentence um, uh, a month. Go. You know, yeah. and think about experience that sentence for a month mm-hmm. and then move on. That works. Sure. There you go. There you go. Uh, guys, it's been wonderful to have Eric on. Erica, give us your plugs one more time so people can check out. Um, so uh, my latest book is The Socrates Express in Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. I also wrote a book people may have heard of called The Geography of Bliss. You can find out more about all my various writings and doings at ericweinerbooks.com. Weiner spelled W-E-I-N-E-R. I'm on Twitter at Eric underscore Weiner, although I try not to spend too much time there. Yeah, that's, it's a pretty toxic place. Um, yeah. Thanks, my audience, for tuning in. Be sure to go to thecvpn.com for your friends, neighbors, relatives. The show has been exploding with referrals. Uh, and also go to youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss if you want to see the video version of this. You can also go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Chris Voss. You can see all the books of all these great authors, just run up your credit card, purchase them all and all that good stuff. And you'll just learn so much. Like it'll make you better looking. People will be attracted to you. You might lose some weight cause you'll be busy. I don't know, reading or something. And uh, yeah, do it, do it now. Anyway, guys, thanks for tuning in. We certainly appreciate you guys. Love you. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>